Well, good morning. Um, there's something about starting off the year on a Sunday, and uh, I hope that your celebrations last night were to your enjoyment. I fell asleep watching college football, so it was awesome. Um, Fritz mentioned like the, uh, the kindness that you all have, and um, I just wanted to say that as someone who's trying to find their voice as they preach, uh, it's really appreciated. And the problem with preaching to a congregation like yourself is, is that everybody's so nice. And, uh, but it's a good problem to have. And uh, Glenda Kimball told my wife yesterday, it's a, it's a blessing to preach to a congregation that's on your side. So if you have your Bibles, our text this morning is Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. And I know Christmas is, is over with, but I just wanted to tell you how much I love the Grinch Stole Christmas. A few weeks ago, our family sat down and watched how the Grinch Stole Christmas, the 1966 animated version, is the best version of this story. I know you're going to say that the 2000 film with Jim Carrey is also good, and it is, but there's something about that 1966 animated version. And the story goes that there's a guy called the Grinch who lives way up on a high mountain, and he hates Christmas. He hates everything about Christmas. He hates trees, gifts, cheer. And down in the valley is the town of Whoville with the Who's, and they love Christmas. They live for Christmas. The gifts, the merriment, the meals. And so naturally, this annoys the Grinch, and what he does is the night before Christmas, he goes on down to Whoville, and he swipes all the decorations, he swipes all the gifts, and he takes it up to the high mountain where he lives, and just as he's about to push it all off the cliff, he hears a vo noises, sounds coming from the residents of Whoville. Whoville? Whoville? Anyways, uh, but the sounds he's not expecting to hear, which are like sadness and mourning, they are songs of joy and singing, because the Who's of Whoville are celebrating the real reason for Christmas. And so what's the most surprising thing about this story is, well, at first, he brings the gifts down the mountain and he distributes them back to the residents of the Hoosville and they forgive him. And the most uh, surprising thing about the story to me is not that the Grinch had a change of heart, it's that the forgiveness of the Hoos is so pure. It's complete, it's full, it's quick. And I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm watching that and I'm thinking, that just doesn't seem right. It seems strange. It seems foreign. Um, and I know that I'm beginning to sound like the Grinch, but like, it's just something about it. Why is it so pure? Where does it come from? And it, because there's no background to the story of the Who's of the Who'sville, at least that I'm aware of, I don't really know the answer to that story. But for us, Jesus gives us a foundation. He gives us a story. And so that's Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 
And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. And so the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in a prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Lord, we come before you this morning needing to hear and see words that point us to Jesus. But for that to be possible, we need the blessing of your spirit. And so I pray those things that do point to you and glorify Christ would be highlighted, and those things that are unhelpful will be forgotten. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and these things we pray in Jesus' name. So it's, it's always helpful to pause and think about where a text is in relation to the entirety of the book. And the book of Matthew serves in many ways as a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In it, Matthew writes to show that Jesus is the God of Israel who has come to dwell among his people and in doing so has worked out their salvation. And he does that by establishing a new kingdom community. And beginning with the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches what his expectations are for his new kingdom community. And as the book progresses, Matthew weaves in teaching material related to what that kingdom looks like. And that brings us to chapter 18 which is to be viewed as one single unit of teaching. And you can see that in the verse 1 of chapter 18, where the disciples ask, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And then in our text, in verse 21, Peter asks, how many times will I forgive him the brother who sins against me? And this is tied directly to Jesus' teaching in verse 15 about the brother who sins against you. And so the Emphasis on verses 15 through 17 is on the spiritual well-being of the offending party or the one who sins. And our related emphasis in our text is on the offended party, the heart of the offended party, the one who has been sinned against, and whether disciples are going to insist on their forgiveness. Are they going to insist on their rights? Are we to just forgive? And Peter's question is our question as well. Is there a limit to our forgiveness? And you can see Peter's concern. He has just confronted his brother who sinned against him. His brother turns in repentance, and must he now forgive? And so Peter throws out that number seven. Are we to forgive our brother seven times? Peter thinks that he's being generous when he says seven, because the Jewish authorities of the day had said, you only need to forgive three times. That's sufficient. And so Peter thinks he's being pious. He thinks he's being generous by saying seven. But Jesus responds, in turn, not with seven, but 77 times. 
And some translations interpret that as 7 times 7 or 490. But the number is not important. Can someone forgive while counting transgressions? Because I hope we don't count transgressions while we try to forgive. Relationships, marriages, they cannot function if transgressions are being counted. And I guarantee that for many of us, myself included, God has forgiven at least 77 of your sins just this morning alone. So by the time you get to 77, forgiveness is ingrained in you. It's a way of life. And you can't count infractions while simultaneously trying to forgive. Or as it was pointed to me this week, if you're doing the math, then you're missing the point. And a better way to understand Jesus' response of 77 is that the number is not important. And what Jesus is communicating is that forgiveness is unlimited. And if we're being honest, unlimited forgiveness can sometimes feel, make us feel uncomfortable. Surely there is a limit to our forgiveness. Couldn't my forgiveness be taken advantage of? How do I know that repentance is real? And I think this is what's so shocking to Peter and gets to the heart of the issue. And allow me to speculate a bit here, but Peter's choice of words betrays his heart. How many times must I do this? How many times must I do that? Children ask this kind of question about eating vegetables. Some adults ask that question. (laughs) Um, How many must I eat? We want boundaries, and the real question is, how many times before I can stop? See, it's entirely possible for Peter to grit his teeth and forgive someone three times. It's possible for you, if you're feeling particularly generous, to forgive someone seven times. But to have a reservoir of unlimited forgiveness requires a change of heart. It's important here to see Peter's question as our question. How many times must I forgive my brother or sister? And as Jesus often does, he answers in the form of a parable. And so this parable of the unforgiving servant is is it's a well-known story to many of us. Um, A parable is a short story that packs a big punch, and not everything in a parable is, has a direct relation to real life. But as you read and hear a parable, it's common to want to identify with one of the characters. So to help us understand the story, I want to divide it into three main sections, or three main scenes. And in particular, scenes one and scenes two both have a debt, they both have a situation or a predicament, They both have an unexpected turn of events. And then scene three is a warning. So beginning in verse 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle his accounts with his servants. And so there we have indication that this parable is in fact teaching on the nature of the kingdom. And so we have the introduction of a character in this parable, the king, and he wants to settle his debts. Verse 24, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And now we have the introduction of a second character who owes the king 10,000 talents. So what is the nature of this debt and what is the value of 10,000 talents? One way you can approach this is trying to make comparisons to help us arrive at an exact number. You'll notice that your Bible may have a footnote with a comment saying that a talent is equal to 20 years of wages. So 
let's say you make $50,000 a year, times that by 20, that's 1 million, and then you times that by 10,000, and you get something like 10 billion. And so the servant owes the king a great amount of money, billions of dollars. But the problem with making a direct comparison across culture and time is that you miss a lot of the significance that Jesus is trying to communicate. For example, a talent is the highest weight or the form of currency, and 10,000 is the highest number at the time. And so when you combine these two observations together, the point is not an actual number, but just to point to how incalculable this servant's debt is. So verse 25, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell to his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And so this is our situation, is the servant falls to his knees, which is entirely appropriate given his debt. And he asked for patience that he might repay. But think about how delusional it is to assume that you could pay off a debt like that. And if you've been keeping up with the news, then you know that there's a lot of talk about student loan forgiveness to the tune of ten dollars to $20,000. Um, and for those with student debt, that's certainly a good deal amount of money, but it's not an insurmountable amount of, mon- amount of money. When we take out that loan, the, in- the uh, indication is that we'll pay that back over time. And so that's not like an accurate illustration of what's happening here. What would be more accurate is to think about the national debt, which the last time I checked, which is a couple days ago, so it might be more, is $32 trillion. It's obviously more. Now imagine if the entirety of the national debt was placed on your shoulders and you have to account for the debt to a higher authority, let's say Congress, and if you were to fall on your knees and ask for patience for repayment, you could work several lifetimes and you're not making a dent in $32 trillion. And despite your pleas for patience and the promise of repayment, you and everyone in that chamber knows that you can't work your way out of your situation. So what is the servant to do? Verse 27, And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. And this is the first inflection point, or the first point in the parable where it goes where we're not expecting it to go. The initial request is for patience, but the king goes beyond that and just cancels the debt outright. And the use of that word pity is meant to convey this idea of compassion. That same word in the Greek is used in Matthew 9.36 and elsewhere when it says of Jesus that he had compassion on the crowds. And so at this point in the parable, we know nothing about the character of the servant. All we know is that he owes a debt. A debt that he can't pay off. And so the cancellation of his debt is not because of anything virtuous in the servant. The cancellation of the debt is because we know that the king is compassionate and merciful And so to make this personal, how heavy does your debt feel like to you? How does it register in your thinking? Does it feel like a burden, but a burden that can be worked off given enough time? Or does it feel like the weight of trillions of dollars lifted off your shoulders? Because the Bible paints a picture in which you owe a great debt to God. Simply by virtue of you having been created, you owe a debt to God. God is the creator and you are his creature. And everything that you are and everything you do exists to honor and glorify this God. 
And then you add to that the fact that instead of worshiping our God and directing your worship towards yourself, you direct your worship towards others. And these acts of sin are not just small infractions. They are deadly serious and infinitely dishonoring and offensive to our God. And because he is a God of justice, they warrant a proper response. But God, and those are some of my favorite words in all of scripture, but God, in his compassion has canceled your debt. He has made the first move. He has set his sights on his people to redeem them, and it's a good thing that he has because you can't work your way out of your debt. It's a gift to be received. It's not something you can work for or earn. And that's the first link in the chain of forgiveness is is to understand the severity of your own situation before your holy God. To see and hear that God has took it upon himself to forgive you. So this is the point of scene one, is your debts and sins damn you, and your situation is dire, but God in his compassion has forgiven your debt. And so that moves us to scene two, starting at verse 28, but when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So now we have the introduction of a second servant, who owes a second debt. And what is the nature and significance of the second debt is 100 denarii would have been equal to like a couple of months worth of wages. And so it's still a substantial amount. It's nothing to be trivial about, but it's clearly insignificant compared to the value of the, the first debt. In fact, the first debt is 600 times, 600,000 times greater. And if you're a Christian in this room, then you're aware of your own debt to God but we also find that throughout life, we owe debts to one another. Debts that are owed to us in the sense that we sin against one another. And if you've been a part of a church long enough, you know that any picture of a perfect community where no sin ever happens quickly crumbles when faced with the reality of your local church. We are a body of changed people in the process of holiness, but we live in the in-between here and not yet, and because of the presence of remaining sin, we do sin against one another. And maybe it's the sin of undue criticism towards your pastor or your small group leader, the sin of not listening or disregarding the concerns and opinions of another because of a difference in gender or race or age. But it's important to remember that the sins we have against one another are nowhere near the level of our sins against God. They are real sins for sure. I'm not discounting some of the hurts that we've endured. But they don't approach the type of sin between God's people and God himself. So the situation is that the first servant has been shown an incredible mercy. It's a mercy from scene one that casts its shadow onto scene two. So this reality should change how the servant responds. And what does he do? He doesn't act in the way we think he should. And this is where things take an unexpected turn. If I were to ask 10 random people on the street who had never heard this parable, what they, how they expect their first servant to respond, um, they would say, well, of course, he would extend the same mercy and forgiveness he received towards the second servant. But that's not what happens. 
the same guy who one minute falls to his knees and begs for patience and the next minute hears the same thing, has him in a headlock, and owes, this servant owes him a real debt, but it's a much smaller and less significant one. And so the first servant is demonstrating that he didn't take to heart the lavish forgiveness of the king in scene one. And this is the point. The scenes are set up in such a way that they contrast each other. The act of forgiveness from the king in the first scene shadows over the events of the second scene, and we expect this servant to behave accordingly. And when he doesn't, we as the audience are shocked. And a verse later, the fellow servants who witnessed this are also shocked and go, t- go and tell their king. And so the point of scene two is that the same mercy that was shown by the king to the servant should in turn be shown to others. And so the logic goes, just as God has forgiven you of your sins, so should you forgive the sins of others. Now, this doesn't mean that we are to forgive everyone for everything at all times, at least not in the way that we commonly define forgiveness. Does it mean that we are always to forget and to throw trust and caution and wisdom and discernment to the wind every time someone repents? There are no consequences? No, I think the text doesn't specifically address this because it's in the context of a kingdom community and people who are repenting. But if the offending party does repent, then we are mandated to forgive in the sense that we don't bring up their sins against them. We receive them back into fellowship. There may be consequences, and trust may be forfeited for a time, but the forgiveness is still real. And that brings up a sometimes an even more difficult question is, is that what do you do about those who do not repent or show no evidence that they will ever repent? Or to put it another way, is our forgiveness contingent on the presence or quality of the offending party's repentance? And I don't think there's an easy answer to that. But I do know that the larger teaching of Scripture points to us not harboring bitterness we're not to be vindictive or angry, and we are to love our enemies. And I, for one, am glad that God's forgiveness for me is not contingent on the quality of my repentance. And so a helpful text for us might be Luke 17, verses 3 through 4. And it's a parallel teaching to the one in our text. In verse 3, he says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And so we see the presence of repentance even when the sinning brother, the brother sins and repents seven times in one day. So can you accurately discern the validity or quality of someone's repentance if that person sins against you seven times in a day? It's just not enough time for that kind of discernment. And so notice the first four words in verse 3 is, pay attention to yourselves. Don't focus on what you can't control, that being the repentance of others. Pay attention to your own heart and your own duty to forgive. And the work of Christ on the cross certainly frees us to forgive despite the absence of, or the presence of repentance, to leave it to God to deal with it in his patience and justice. Because the alternative is to trap yourself in a prison of bitterness and hardness of heart. And so we focus on our response, our own hearts, and leave the rest to God. 
leave it to his goodness. So that first chain of divine forgiveness really puts a horizontal and human forgiveness in perspective. This allows the second chain of repentance to be possible. How can we insist on getting our own and withholding forgiveness when divine forgiveness has been shown to us? And so we had two scenes there, one and two, a debt, a situation, and unexpected response. The first, the mercy of the first scene casts a shadow on the second scene, and so we're to forgive others. Now, what if you try to separate those two? And that's where scene three comes in. Scene three is where Jesus will respond to those who insist on divine forgiveness, but withhold forgiveness from their brothers. In verse 31, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? This is the question that sums up the teaching. and is directed towards you. Should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debts. And so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And it's that last verse of judgment in verse 35 that lands like a sledgehammer. It's uncomfortable and harsh to our ears. Can God's forgiveness be retracted? No, there's too much evidence in Scripture to suggest that. And Herman Ritterboss I love that name. Herman Ritterboss, he's a Dutch theologian, is on point when he says, whoever tries to separate man's forgiveness from God's will no longer be able to count on God's mercy. In so doing, he not merely forfeits it, like the servant in the parable, rather, he shows that he never had a part in it. God's mercy is not something cut and dried that is received only once. It is a persistent power that pervades all of life. And if it does not become manifest as such a power, then it was never received at all. And to Ritterboss's point, if we try to separate God's forgiveness from forgiveness toward one another, to insist on one and not the other, by doing that, we prove that we never had a part of divine forgiveness. It is the forgiveness that is persistent and powerful and that changes the heart that allows human forgiveness to occur. To be careful, though, forgiveness of others is not a condition of your salvation. You're not saved because you forgive others, but it is a necessary consequence. And make no mistake that this verse is a warning and speaks of judgment. For some of us, there may be a name, a person, who comes to mind that you refuse to forgive. You just can't forgive them. In any way you look at it, you're justified in withholding your forgiveness. You see what Jesus is saying, but you've determined that your situation is unique. Nobody can possibly know the hurt that you felt or the atrocities another person has committed. But to heed Jesus' warning here is that he is telling you that no instance of withholding forgiveness is to the repentant is acceptable. And if you are persistent in this, Jesus is telling you you're wrong. And I want to I be sensitive here. Jesus is not saying... Forgiveness is always immediate and easy. All you need to do is hear the parable of the unforgiving servant. And I can't imagine some of the hurt and harm has been done to some of us in this room. But there is room for struggle and difficulty in forgiveness. What there's not room is for is persistent defiance. 
In this warning of judgment, we are seeing the tension between God's justice and his mercy in forgiveness. God is a righteous and just God. He cannot let sin pass. But he is also a merciful and gracious God, one who delights in the forgiveness of his people. So Peter's initial question of how many times must I forgive another? How can my forgiveness be unlimited? How do I know I won't be taken advantage of? How do I know that someone's truly repentant? His questions are our questions. How is this possible? And the last phrase in verse 35 from the heart is in this parable points to where that forgiveness comes from. And it's from a heart that has grasped divine forgiveness. And so when we look at divine forgiveness, I want to I wanna look at two questions. Is how is forgiveness possible? And why is forgiveness possible? See, it's one thing for a man to forgive the sins of another man against them. I can forgive your sins against me. You can forgive my sins against you. But it's another thing to forgive one's sins against God. I can't forgive your sins against God. You can't forgive my sins against God. Only God has the authority to do that. And in the New Testament, that Jesus, Jesus has this authority. So we see this when Jesus heals the paralytic in Matthew 9. In verse 2, he says to the man, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes, they hear this, and they think and determine that he is blaspheming or speaking falsely. Why? Because they know that only God has the authority to forgive sins. And Jesus responds with the question, is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or to rise and walk? And so in order to prove his authority, Jesus says to the man, get up and walk, and he does. So forgiveness is possible because Jesus has authority to forgive your sins against God and because God himself is the second person of the Trinity. But how is forgiveness possible when God has revealed himself as both a just God and a merciful God? The Bible teaches that God is a just God, a just judge that will execute justice towards man according to his works. But the Bible also reveals a merciful God. Exodus 33:19, I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Psalm 103:8, he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So how can God be both merciful and just? As it is revealed to us, this poses a problem and they seem to be at odds. And the answer that we find is in the cross of Christ, the work of Christ. The reality of sin, the reality of God, leaves no room for mere dismissal of sin. So he needs to provide a substitute who took our sin and received the due punishment that we deserve. And it's not just any substitute. He provides himself. This judge himself took the place of the condemned. He took your place. God has set out to forgive us because he is a merciful and compassionate God. So he has made a way by sending his own son, sending himself, who is compassion and mercy, manifested among us. And in his death, he bore your sins. He took the punishment you deserve. And by doing so, you are forgiven. Your sins are as far as the east is from the west. Not only does he forgive your sins and clears your account, he also gives you credits. He imparts his righteousness to you. He has separated you from the guilt and power of sin, and he makes you whole. And in creating a new kingdom community filled with saints, the expectation is, is that you show forgiveness toward one another. 
in light of all that God has done for you. And so our forgiveness towards others is not an attempt to earn our forgiveness, but it is a response to a changed heart that can offer unlimited forgiveness. So when Jesus says your forgiveness is to be unlimited, he's grounding that in the work of the Father and the work of the Son into a changed heart. And that's how we're able to forgive unlimitedly towards brothers and even those who are our enemies. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your mercy and compassion towards your people. We thank you for the work of Christ and the forgiveness we have. So we ask that your spirit work out these realities of forgiveness in the hearts of your people. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.